The year is 1929. It's just past midnight, but something stirs in the sleeping Essex parish of Borley. You awaken with the feeling that you are not alone. The unmistakable sound of footsteps echo just beyond the walls. You toss aside your bed covers and rush to the window. Outside in the courtyard, the figure of a nun waits silently in the darkness. Confused but curious, you leave the safety of your room to venture into the crisp summer's night. But as you approach her, you realize something isn't right. The hairs on the back of your neck begin to stand on end, and the warm air turns ice cold with each step towards the figure in her religious habit. You call out to her, ask her who she is. Does she need help? No answer. You make your voice louder in case she did not hear you. But even so, your voice is the only sound on the wind. You and the nun, the only disturbance in an otherwise quiet village. You call to her again, but just as you reach her, she turns her face to you, then vanishes. Your eyes scan the area all around, but to no avail. She's gone. Shaken and unsure, you turn to leave when another sound rings across the grounds. The sounds of hooves on cobblestone. Still in a state of disbelief, you watch as a carriage approaches just beyond your home. You will go to the rider, inform them of the nun. She can't be far, and she might need help. You run to beseech them, successfully flagging down the glossy black carriage. It's cold again. You ignore the sickening feeling in the pit of your stomach and call out to the two horsemen at the front of the carriage. You begin to walk towards them, speaking of the nun when you freeze. A blood-curdling scream leaves your lips before you can stop it, and it's as if your heart has stopped in your chest. The two men are just like any other horsemen, except for one major feature. Neither of these men have a head. Welcome to Humble Hauntings, where ghost enthusiasts and lovers of the unknown can pull up a seat and make themselves at home. I'm your host, MJ McAdams, part-time shadow person, full-time supernatural seeker. And today, we are lifting the veil to peer into a time when spirits were anything but a thing of the past. The Roaring Twenties. Those three words alone spark images of flapper girls and feathers and pearls, large and lavish parties reminiscent of F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby, and swinging jazz bands that fill the decade with music. It was an age of change and growth. For many, 
This moment in history was one of economic prosperity and birthed a culture of carefree living. Though we all know this devil-may-care way of life did not last, it set the tone for an entire decade. But there was another side to the 20s, a more spiritual side. Spiritualism was nothing new in the 1920s, but it did experience its last resurgence during this decade. It was the period in our history when stories of spirits and the afterlife seemed to prosper. The Roaring Twenties was obsessed with ghosts. For anyone who is unfamiliar with the term, spiritualism was the belief that not only did spirits exist, but they could also communicate with us from the beyond. This was usually done through a medium or a psychic, though this didn't stop regular everyday folk from hosting their own amateur seance in an attempt to contact lost loved ones or even powerful spirits. People who follow this movement believe that spirits were more advanced than we are and they could provide us with the secret knowledge that would help guide us through moral and ethical issues. They could answer questions about the afterlife and even the nature of God himself. But wherever there are believers, you will find skeptics close by. Which brings us to the beginning of this tale. It all started when a man named Harry Price joined the Society for Psychical Research, or SPR, in 1920. Harry Price, born on January 17, 1881, in London, England, had a knack for debunking fraudulent mediums when he joined SPR. This was due to his background as an amateur conjurer and an expert in sleight-of-hand magic tricks. It was actually his interest in stage magic and conjuring that birthed his true passion, the investigation of paranormal phenomena. After joining SPR, he went on to debunk the spirit photographer William Hope and mediums such as Maria Silbert. But it was his investigation of a particular building in 1929 that shot this paranormal debunker to fame. It was this year that Harry Price invited himself to the Borley Rectory. Though his paranormal research led him to disprove many mediums and hauntings of the time, this did not make Harry Price a diehard skeptic. He did believe that there was true paranormal activity out in the world, and when he heard of the Borley Rectory and the ghost stories that surrounded it, he couldn't resist the urge to see it for himself. The history behind the Borley Rectory predates the very organization Price was a member of. The Gothic-style red brick home was constructed in 1862 and seemed to have an air of paranormal activity from the start. The Borley Rectory was made to house the Reverend Henry Dawson Ellis Bull and his family. It was constructed on Hall Road near the Borley Church and was later expanded to house the rector's growing family of 14 children. Local legends stated that the rectory itself was built on the site of a 13th century monastery where a young nun and a monk had fallen in love. The couple were planning on eloping, but their happiness was cut short. 
They were both discovered and murdered for their betrayal. The monk was executed, and the nun, they say she was bricked up within the walls of her convent, alive. Traumatic events lead to traumatic energies. Invisible fingerprints left on a place that housed such extreme anguish and tragedy. So it was no surprise when in 1900, Reverend Bull's daughters began to report strange phenomena in their parish home. One of his daughters had come across a figure in the twilight. The figure was that of a nun, adorned in the dark clothes of her order. But upon approaching the woman, she vanished into thin air. The sightings continued and became more frequent among Bull's daughters. The apparitions witnessed were not only a nun, but a mysterious dark man in a tall hat. They would roam the grounds of the rectory, each time disappearing as the girls approached them. Locals began reporting sightings of their own, including a phantom carriage driven by two headless horsemen. Although the accounts have been scrutinized over the years, Ethel Bull, one of Bull's daughters, maintained her story of the ghost nun until she passed away in 1963 at the age of 93. When questioned about the stories from her childhood, she simply stated, what would be the use of an old lady like me waiting to meet her maker, telling a lot of fairy stories. But it was the arrival of Harry Price at the Borley Rectory in 1929 that gave it its infamous title of most haunted house in England. In fact, Price gave it the title himself in his published account of the red brick Gothic revival home in the Daily Mirror, a local newspaper. When he arrived at the rectory, it was a gloomy, unattractive building that the Reverend G.E. Smith and his wife now called home. They were both professed skeptics of the paranormal, but told Price that strange occurrences started right after moving in. Occurrences that not even a die-hard skeptic could ignore. whispers, odd black shapes, strange lights, phantom footsteps, and unusual odors were a general occurrence at the rectory. But that wasn't even half of the incidents that plagued their parish home. Objects would be smashed when no one was there. Mrs. Smith would find writing on the wall, unnerving messages from the beyond. Sounds of horses galloping and bells ringing frequented the house. The Smiths were even able to communicate with their ghostly roommates, using a series of rapping noises in response to questions. And then, of course, was the vision of the nun, who seemed bound to roam the rectory for all eternity. Price conducted a seance at once, and his questioning of the spirits was answered by faint tapping sounds. After a series of questions, the spirit, who Price had been communicating with, claimed to be none other than the original owner of the home, Reverend Bull himself. That same year, 
The Smiths left the Borley Rectory, and a first cousin of the Bulls, Reverend Lionel Algren Foister, settled in with his wife Marion and their three-year-old adopted daughter, Adelaide. Almost at once, the spiritual activity increased, with phantom voices calling out Miriam by name, insistent on getting her attention. But the paranormal phenomena went from being simply out of the ordinary to increasingly violent and terrifying. It seemed that the spirits were committed to making sure the Foister family knew they were not welcome here, all except for one spirit, the one believed to be calling out to the Reverend's wife. As soon as the Foisters had arrived, this spirit even let messages on the wall, cries for help. The messages read, Marion, please help me get out. The Reverend Foister even attempted an exorcism twice to free their home of the frightful ghost. But his efforts were fruitless. So he wrote to Price, telling him of the terrifying incidents that plagued their home. And Harry Price returned to further investigate the activity of the Borley Rectory. He couldn't find suspicion of fraud around the rectory or its inhabitants during his previous investigation of the house. It seemed that it was the genuine article, and he was fascinated by it. But the Foisters did not share the same feelings toward their haunted home. As activity in the house became increasingly violent in nature, Marion and their daughter began to live in constant terror of their invisible tormentor. On one occasion, Marion was even thrown from her bed by some unseen force. The spirit would at times lock their daughter Adelaide in her room, and on one occasion, she was even hurt by it. When questioned about this, all the Foisters would say was, she was attacked by something terrible. Finally, in 1935, the Foisters had had enough. They moved out, leaving the rectory empty but for the spirits that kept it for almost two years. Then, in 1937, Harry Price leased the Borley Rectory for himself for an entire year. He moved in right away and prepared to study the haunted house in more depth than ever before. As soon as he was settled in, he hired a staff of over 40 assistants, mostly students, to help him. Many of these assistants were self-proclaimed mediums and immediately delved into one of the rectory's greatest mysteries, the fate of the Phantom Nun. Through communication with the spirits, they came to believe that the forbidden lovers met a quicker but more violent end. After their affair was brought to light, the nun and her monk were strangled and their bodies disposed of beneath the monastery's garden. The reason for the paranormal disturbances was that they longed for a proper burial. A planchette seance was also conducted with the help of Helen Glavelle, 
a daughter of one of Price's assistants, in March of 1938 in the south of London. During the seance, a spirit revealed itself to be the nun who said her name was Marie Lierre. She was a French nun who had left her religious order, not for a monk, but for a member of the Waldgrove family. The Waldgroves were the owners of the Borley Manor, a house predating the rectory. The spirit went on to tell the spectators of the seance that the nun was murdered on the site where the Borley Rectory now stood. Her lifeless body, thrown in an unused well on the grounds or buried in the cellar. The writing on the walls during the foister stay at the rectory were the alleged cry for help from the nun, who was desperate for someone to find her body so her spirit could finally be free. It was said that a second spirit attempted to make contact as well. This entity said that he would set fire to the rectory that very night. He also said that at the time of the fire, the bones of a murdered person would be revealed. Though no fire took place that night, there was a fire almost exactly a year later on February 27, 1939. At this time, Price had left the rectory convinced that the paranormal activity that was taking place was true and the source of it was the ghosts of the medieval monastery that once rested on the Borley grounds. The new owner, Captain W.H. Gregson, had been unpacking when he knocked over an oil lamp in the hallway. The fire quickly spread and severely damaged the home. After investigations conducted by the insurance company, it was found that the fire was started deliberately and Borley Rectory was left in ruins with only the ghosts trapped within it for company. Price returned to the ruins of the Borley Rectory in August 1943. Still believing that the nun's body was buried on the property, Price conducted a brief dig in the cellars and that's when he found it. A few feet below the cellar floor, resting beneath the ancient soil, were two bones. Bones belonging to that of a young woman. After the bones were discovered, they were given a Christian burial in a local churchyard. The parish of Borley refused to allow any sort of ceremony to take place in their cemetery due to the local opinion that the bones were simply those of a pig. Even so, Harry Price never stopped believing that what he uncovered was true. Borley Rectory was a genuine example of paranormal activity. The spirits within the walls of the rectory were as real as any person made of flesh and blood. Despite the skeptics of the time who believed that it was merely sensational nonsense, the book that Price wrote on the rectory was well-received for its meticulous psychical research. When Price passed away 10 years later, in 1948, he left this world knowing that, in his lifetime, he experienced true psychic phenomena. But it was after his death that allegations were made of his research which was re-examined by other psychical researchers. It all started when Charles Sutton, a Daily Mail reporter, suspected Price of fake phenomena. 
During Sutton's visit to the rectory, he claimed that he was hit by a pebble on the head. Believing it to be possible poltergeist activity, he was surprised to find soon after that Price had been hiding pebbles in his coat pocket. After these accusations arose, other accusers began to come out of the woodworks, and they had a field day, trying to destroy any ounce of credibility that Price had. The most damning accusation of them all came from a previous resident of the rectory, Mrs. Smith, who called the rectory her home at the beginning of Price's investigations. In 1949, just a year after his death, Mrs. Smith signed a statement saying that nothing at all had happened until Price had arrived to the boiler rectory. In fact, she suspected him of being the perpetrator all along of the suspicious activity that plagued their home. Even Mrs. Foister, another former resident of the rectory, stated that she believed while some incidents were genuine, she was convinced many were fabricated by her husband, who was in cahoots with another psychic researcher, attracted to the rumors that surrounded the rectory. Later on, she even admitted to an affair with the lodger Frank Peerless and used the excuse of paranormal activity to cover up their secret meetings. In the end, there seemed to be just as many skeptics in Price's work as there were believers. While some believed him to be a dedicated ghost hunter and thorough and honest researcher, others believed him to be a fraud, a man simply desperate for the fame and attention that his research brought him. But could it be that simple? Even if all the occurrences that were documented by Price were falsified, then how do we explain the reportings from countless members of the community and the residents themselves that circulated even before Harry Price came to the rectory? If it was all just some elaborate ruse, then how do we explain the visions of the Phantom Nun that occurred some 50 years before Price ever walked Borley's halls? Maybe it was the gloomy and gothic features of the house that inspired thoughts of spirits and phantoms in the minds of those who live there. Or maybe, just maybe, even though the ruins of the rectory are all but gone, maybe if we look closely, we'll see the figure of the nun waiting in the twilight, as she has done centuries before, and as she will continue to do centuries after we join that mysterious spirit world ourselves. Thank you for joining me today at Humble Hauntings. Stick around after this word from our sponsors to visit another popular specter from the 1920s. Stories of the vanishing hitchhiker are nothing new. We are all familiar with Resurrection Mary, the spirit of a young woman, blonde hair, big blue eyes, in her white party dress, looking for a ride home after a night out on the town. There are claims that unsuspecting men have danced with her, even kissed her and offered her a ride home. But the address she gives them is peculiar. By the time they reach their destination, Resurrection Cemetery, she's vanished. A popular Chicago specter, Resurrection Mary has cemented herself in American folklore with countless reports from people of all walks of life claiming to have met her, 
talk to her and danced with her. And every time they give her a ride home, she disappears as soon as they reach her final resting place. But there's another Chicago spirit that may have started her hitchhiking days long before the legend of Resurrection Mary arose. The Flapper Girl Ghost of Chicago, while not as well known, incites the same fascination as her hitchhiking cousin. A dark-haired, doe-eyed beauty in the classic Flapper Girl dress was rumored to linger at 1800 South Harlem Avenue, the home of the Jewish Waldheim Cemetery in Suburban Forest. But the cemetery wasn't her only stomping grounds. Some years before World War II, people often reported seeing her at the Melody Mill Ballroom, where she would dance the night away with young men and then ask them for a ride home at the end of the night. When they would arrive at the address given, the cemetery, the girl would explain that she lived in the caretaker's house and then would step out of the car and into the night. With not even a goodbye, she would run off into the cemetery and many of the men would run after her to pursue her. But before she could be reached, she would vanish among the tombstones. On one account, a man had become so infatuated with her that the next day he went back to the caretaker's house. But after questioning the occupants of the home, he was only met with blank stares and confusion. They told him, no person that he had just described had ever lived in that house. The history of the Flapper Girl Phantom is all but a mystery to us. No one knows who she really was or how she met her untimely demise. We can only assume that much like Resurrection Mary or the fabled nun of Borley Rectory, that the tragedy of her early passing left fingerprints on this physical plane of existence. Human emotion is a powerful thing. It's strong enough to reshape the people and the world around us. And in the depths of our despair, it could very well be that we leave an echo behind, a whisper, a silhouette in the silence of the night. And the spirits of people and places that have vanished behind the veil of history, well, they might not be as far away as we think. Thank you for joining me today at Humble Hauntings a place that paranormal enthusiasts can always call home. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and share with your friends. When it comes to ghostly ventures, the more, the merrier. But until next time, my spookables, remember, home is where the haunt is.